Hello? 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 Hello, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Can hey, you Ben. Ding dong. Oh, there. It's better. Sometimes it's like cloudy right at the start. That's how I like to uh, um, describe the voice, your voice sometimes. Cloudy. Uh-huh. But now it's good. Not misty. No, not misty. I'm going to... I got I to move the, key, the microphone closer. I'm missing my boom. Remember I we miss- talked about booms? <laughs> yes. I miss... I miss your boom, too. <laughs> Is that, <laughs> Suddenly, this is a different kind of podcast. It is. It is. Sudden, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm Nicki Minaj. <laughs> do you, sure. Do you know who that is? No. Did you get? Did you get my, the the Misty reference from earlier in the call? Don't uh, call me Misty. Uh, Don't play Misty for play me. Play Misty for me. You, you ever see that movie? No. Is that Casablanca? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a, a it's a Clint Eastwood movie um, where he's a DJ and, and he has a stalker. Really? Yeah, oh, it's good. It's a good movie. It's early, early uh, Eastwood, but uh, he's a yeah. DJ. What, like a like a DJ who's on the like radio, a, or is he yes. a DJ like a no. wedding, wedding DJ? <laughs> no, I, it was before the days of wedding DJs. Um, <laughs> a DJ on the radio, and uh, he would have this this woman that would call in and say, "Play Misty for me," and uh, turned out she was a stalker. But yeah, yeah, great, great movie. It's a it's a jazz standard, Misty. Yes. Very well done. Um, yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, I can thank Wikipedia and my fast fingers. <laughs> fast and quiet. Yeah, not bad. Misty's a jazz standard, written in 1954 by pianist Errol Garner. Not a jazz fan. Not, uh, but I, but I, and I'm also, um, you know, my, my um, knowledge of Clint Eastwood movies really hinges on um, uh, Million Dollar Baby. And post, wow. I've, I've never really seen any of the oh, dirty none of the Harry's. dirty Harrys. No. Oh, dude, that's your homework. Okay, I can do that. They're they're good. They're I'm looking really at good. His, let's see his uh, you know his filmography will be mm. massive here. But let's see, uh, um, yeah, Million Dollar Baby, Mystic River, like that, Un- Unforgiven. I know that those are the ones that he's won uh, awards for. Um, I, I never saw letters from Iwo Jima, but of course I'm in the post you know po- postmodern Clint Eastwood phase. Um, oh, and then all of the cowboy movies, they're so good. In the Line of Fire, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, and, and clearly you haven't seen with the the one with the orangutan. Uh, Bubbles? <laughs> no, you're thinking of Ronald Reagan. Oh, <laughs> I really am. <laughs> oh, Don, 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 Don. Um, hey, so so maybe there's some Netflix Clint Eastwood viewing in my in my future. Yeah, it's, not, it's I yeah, however you got to get it. Uh yeah, it's uh, that's like that's uh, that's a, a, you know, it's it's part of I think it would be part of your living in America now. Uh it is. That you have to you have to listen to these. You have to watch these Clint Eastwood uh movies. So here are the ones that are on uh Netflix. Good ba- good the bad and the ugly, which is mm, 100, about- 179 minutes. Yeah, that's a great movie. Oh, this is on DVD. If for just for the for the for the the music alone. Oh my gosh! All right, I'll check that out. Um, I'm excited. Netflix has got. Uh, I mean, now we're really devolving, but um, the, you know, it's the start of the month. It's September second. For those who follow us in real time, this will be posted in 2015, <laughs> based on our scheduling. Um, oh, I have good news in that respect. Oh, okay, or at least good, good. semi good news. Well, well, it's, it's, being that it's at the start of the month, you know that there are new things added in Netflix, including seasons one to seven of Californication, which uh-huh. I've been – I've watched on airplanes every once in a while. And our friend um, Doug Powell loves that show. 
Hmm. Um, so I'm, I, I've got, it looks like seven seasons of uh, Showtime um, show in front of me to, to catch up on. Yeah, well, Kristen is a, a big fan of David Duchovny um, uh, um, since, you know, X-Files days. Um, but actually, and yeah, and you know, it's funny, this this Netflix changeover thing um, has, has been interesting to us recently, too, because Kristen discovered a website where you can find this. It's important to know what's come on to Netflix, yeah. but it's also important to know what goes off. And so it was kind of a last-minute thing to, uh, like, oh, we got to watch these things before they go off Netflix. Well, what... So now that you mention that, Kristen's found that. What's the name of the site? <laughs> Damned if I know, and that's not the name of the site. Damned if I know. Um, dot, I think, dot biz. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, dot plumber. I dot, think <laughs> dot, it's a Tumblr blog. Yes. Um, Damned if I oh, plumbed if I know. I don't know. <laughs> but if, I think if, if you just Google what's going to go off of Netflix, um, well, and, not, and of course I can't remember now what it was that we watched that was going off of Netflix um, either. So. Uh, well, Whatever. Hey, um, I've been watching um, uh, The Americans. I can't remember if I told you that two weeks ago, but we've been obsessed with this show. Mm -hmm. And and it's one – I don't think I have because it's – I thought of you and I thought of Kristen when we started watching it because it it is clearly the type of show that Kristen would not like Mm. based on what what you described. It is – there are bad guys who are are the the protagonists Mm. who, who we like. Um, mm-hmm. and they develop the characters around you know the, around them, or the, you know, they develop those characters as as good good people. But it's clearly this good or bad spies killing people in that are Russian in the U.S. Which um, it's in the set in 1981. It's a period piece. Maybe I did mention it, but anyway, I love it. We're obsessed. Yeah, no, um, and and I I think she probably would not like it based on your description. Um, what we have just re- well, of course, we've been watching the new Doctor Who, uh, but we, what we've also been watching is the show that that uh, BBC America has put on after Doctor Who. We just started watching that, um, The Intruders, mm. uh, or I guess it's just called Intruders. There's oh, no yeah. the the there, um, but uh, which is which is kind of weird and it's sort of a you know fringy X Filesy thing, which is you know right in in her wheelhouse, um, and it's it's pretty good it's uh it's got uh one of the british actors that we like uh from oh uh life on mars and anyway it's a it's it's a we watched the first two and it's like yeah we'll watch another one it's it's still very sort of it's not really clear what's going on there's a lot of sort of intertwining plot lines and yeah it's still just not very clear at all what's going on have you um i'm probably not going to watch that show (laughs) but i (laughs) I'm not. I mean, I don't, so, so as you were telling me about it, I was like, "Yeah, I don't. I don't that's that sounds good for you guys. You guys will like that's it. fine for Kristen. It's yeah, fine for Kristen. Have, <laughs> have you watched Comic Book Men? No. <laughs> Apparently, there's three seasons of this thing called Comic Book Men, which is, I think, um, uh, Kevin Smith uh, show. That's I think it's on AMC. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, about um, it's about your your state. It's about uh, Jay and Silent Bob's secret stash in, in Red Bank, New Jersey. And all the people that work there, there's uh, a whole bunch of oh. 36 episodes. So anyway, the first three seasons are on Netflix. What the hell would it be about? <laughs> um, pizza, the mafia. I mean, what else is there in New Jersey? Um, <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a reality show about Kevin Smith's comic book store. Yeah. Amazing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't believe there's a show about that. I, uh, there's, I, you know what? There's probably a show about the people that watch it. 
<laughs> this is this is what we have become in this country. Yeah, this is true. So, but it, it sounds. I mean, I love I, I love you know the Kevin Smith, Jay and Silent Bob universe mm. world. I've just never watched the the show. There's there, there's no more than enough stuff for me to watch. Oh, it's so true. And I like I like to watch stuff. I mean, I, there's like I, I can't. We we rarely run out of things. Um. So that's coming on this this month as well, and a show that you and I have also uh, talked about, um, the New Girl season three is coming uh, out on uh, Netflix in a couple of weeks, September sixteenth. And I think that's one one thing that we can agree on that we both like is New Girl. Yes. Um, and before we move off the what's coming on to Netflix, uh, Trailer Park Boys season eight, and you know about the Trailer I, Park. Boys. I have I have tr- this yeah, and this is definitely a show that Kristen would not watch. No. Um, but, and I have watched parts of it and it is equally, uh, you know, it's like 50% disturbing, 50% hilarious. Well, yes. And, and a hundred percent Canadian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, um, Netflix, uh, there are seven seasons that, that ran on, um, a TV, uh, show or station in Canada called show showcase. And it finished, um, in before I left Canada in, in, back in 2007, and it's got uh, Ricky and Julian and Bubbles. Those are the the um, the protagonists, uh, as they not say. To be, not to be confused with Bubbles from The Wire. No, different bu- and not uh, Ronald Reagan's Bubbles, the chimpanzee. <laughs> there's, there's there's lots of. Turns out there's a lot of Bubbles in TV. <laughs> um, so uh, so the show. I mean, the premise of the Trailer Park Boys is. Um, you know, pretty pretty self descriptive uh, title. Um, it's some guys that live in a trailer park in uh, just outside of Halifax, Nova Scotia. They um, try to grow pot and sell it, and <laughs> uh, and then the start of every season after season one, the end of every season is they go to jail, and the start of every season is they're coming out of jail or someone's coming out of jail. Oh. It's awesome. Um, but uh, when we were in Canada, they were talking about. Um, a movie, and I haven't seen it yet, but I believe it's on Netflix, or one that is, um, it, it was in the theaters, which was um, uh, about, le- it, it was tra- the premise of the Trailer Park Boys movie, or the current one was um, that Canadian government was going to legalize marijuana, and um, the Trailer Park Boys were lobbying against that because that would open up the market to other dealers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't know. I look forward to season eight and see what what Netflix is going to do with it. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and real real time follow up. Uh, uh, the the chimp in the Reagan movie was Bonzo, not Bubbles. Well, but you know who Bubbles was, right? Michael Jackson's chimp. Oh yes, That's what, yeah. Hence the confusion. That is. Um... So uh, a little, I mean, we, we've got, we have some guests that are going to come on here in a second, but a little food safety follow-up, um, just as in passing, uh, related to the Trailer Park Boys and pot, is <laughs> it, it, literally, so we're, we're pulling, you know, a bunch of news for Barf Blog and the stuff that we do, and I, I go through our Google Alerts and, and RSS feeds, and over the last, there's been a couple of stories on this in the Denver Post, but over the last three weeks, there's been this rise of local newspapers in Colorado covering food safety issues regarding edible marijuana. And, and, but all of a sudden, it's like a really big, hot topic in Colorado. Huh. I mean, it's been you know, going on. Um, uh, it, it, the products have been legal now for almost a year, I think. I don't, 
I don't know what the I don't follow it so much, but um, there are you know some real um, uh, salmonella concerns with the with dried edible marijuana. So, so and, and oh yeah, well, and and this is you know, and this this you know, I think I might have mentioned on this podcast that I was contacted. Apparently, a bunch of food safety folks were contacted by. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast by a guy who runs a testing lab, a marijuana testing lab. And they there are microbial standards for marijuana, but they are state by state. And like many microbial standards, they are discordant, right? And, and again, like many microbial standards, they do not appear to be science-based. Um, and so this guy reached out to a bunch of us to say, look, can you help me to standard, you know, to come up with some science-based standards for this. And I, and I tried to help him as, as best I could. Um, I think I might have also mentioned he does, he has sent me sort of rather long, um, rambling, <laughs> rambling. Emails. Like he's forgetting stuff. <laughs> yeah. Or it takes him a while to get to the point or anyway. <laughs> so that might just be his normal personality. I'm not sure. Could be. I'm not saying anything. Um, um <laughs> We, Danny and I went out. So my parents are here, and we went out for, um, for, for pot. No, not for pot. Not <laughs> hey, don't we can't not not North Carolina. Don't get me arrested, Don. They kick me out Sorry. of this country. Sorry, um, yes. We, Especially if you don't know about Clint Eastwood. Right, right, exactly. They, that's one of the things they ask you when you come in your citizenship test. Um, we went out for for dinner, and then had some dessert afterwards at a at a restaurant, a you know different place, and. Um, we had the most like bizarre exchange with the server who um, couldn't – first of all, there was a list of uh, – there were pies. The place we went to was all pies. And there was a list and he didn't know most of the stuff that was on the list. And then he was like, yeah, there's a bullwinkle pie. And like he looked at both of us with this glazed look and he's like, so that's a moose pie. Um, and then, then he um, proceeded to tell us that the kitchen was closing, which he is the server – you know, thought was that's just unfair that the kitchen is closing right now and just went on and ranted rant and ranted and Dana are pretty sure that he was stoned um that this this entire disc discussion that we had was um was, was with someone who uh who, who had clearly um uh was eating a lot of pies uh in the back um but it was it, it was the most like hilarious discussion where we just kept looking at each other and he would come back and be like, yeah, it's, I'm sorry. I don't know why they close. It's just unfair that they're closing. It's unfair to you as the customer and just went on this rant. So, so we mentioned that in a Yelp uh, review. <laughs> and, you know, and it's funny, I'm glad that you mentioned this because I had a bunch of things that I wanted to talk about on the show. Um, and this, and I didn't write any of them down, of course, but, um, and I don't think I've mentioned this to you before. Um, and if I have, if I mentioned it on the last podcast, I apologize. But there is a great book that I just finished reading called "The Minotaur Takes a Cigarette Break." Did we talk about this? No, no, I don't know anything about this. Learned about this on a podcast, and I couldn't remember what one. And then suddenly it occurred to me. You know what it was? I was going to send you and um, Todd uh, White. That's uh, uh, Wendy Wendy Wade White's um, uh, husband. A link to this uh, because it is uh, it it is it is so weird. It, it's basically imagine the historical mythical figure, the Minotaur, who is immortal, who has lived from you know ancient times into the present day, and he works in a restaurant in North Carolina. 
Grubs. <laughs> I see this. He's a cook at Grubs Rib. Yeah, yeah and it going. is. I mean, and it, it is. And 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 you know, I heard. I was trying to think where did I hear about this. It turns out I heard about this on Alton Brown's podcast. I think the one where he interviews is John Hodgman, um, and which is again, by the way, you know, I. You know, I'm a some, somewhat of an Alton Brown fan, but uh, really highly recommend his interview with William Shatner. Um, which did we talk about that on the podcast? We did, we did. Sorry, we, I was on mute there. Oh, okay, right. So, all right, so that was it. So, and then I went on to listen to his interview with Hodgman, which was also equally interesting and, and delightful. And they mentioned this book, and I went and bought the Kindle edition on uh, on Amazon, and recently finished reading it. And it is a weird and delightful movie and and i think you would like it because it's got back of the house kitchen type stuff i like that um it's got southern stuff he lives in a trailer park basically and i mean not that everybody in the south lives in a trailer park no because clearly in nova scotia people living in trailer parks as well yes hence trailer park boys yes but it is i I just can't i it's it's almost indescribable but it's delightful and 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 just very uh, I just found myself mesmerized by it. So again, I encourage you to download the the, the free uh, trial on on the Kindle and check it out. If if it's something that I can loan from my Kindle, I'd be happy to loan you my copy. It's just uh, it's it's just it's really. I just again, I, I felt it was um, just I, I couldn't I couldn't stop reading it because oh. it was. I just wanted to know what happened next. Just very intricate and well thought out and just bizarre like who you know where did this idea come from but but again they're just very very interesting and i think you'll appreciate it from the southern perspective as well as the food perspective i like it i'm gonna read the amazon um summary of it because it sounds it you've got me hooked here Five thousand years out of the labyrinth the minotaur finds himself in the american south living in a trailer park and working as a line cook at a steakhouse no longer a devourer of human flesh, the Minotaur is socially inept, a lonely creature with very human needs. But over a two-week period, as his life dissolves into chaos, this broken and alienated immortal, immortal awakens to the possibility for happiness and the capacity for love. It sounds it sounds bizarre. It sounds uh, sounds like uh, like I would like this. Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great book, and I never never would have found it. Um, without without listening to that to that podcast uh, by by Alton Brown and um, uh, John Hodgman, so anyway, well well highly recommended. Good. I gave it I think I gave it four stars on four. on uh, Kindle for uh, four thermometers or, or five, we, five yeah we, we give it five we give it five thermometers on the Futsi Talk uh, podcast. There you go. <laughs> it's our first book review. Yeah, excellent. Um, well, good, good. Um, hey, so uh, should we? Um, should we invite our? We've got a couple of guests that are going to join us. Yes, um, and you have you have you're, you're able to do that from your end. I, I think I'm able to do this. So um, we'll we'll introduce them when they get on. But uh, Lauren Nelson from Alchemy uh, Systems, as well as Jay Neal, um, uh, uh, who I know um, a little bit from the University of Houston, uh, are going to join us, and they're going to they wanted to come on and talk about some of the stuff that they're doing. So we're going to. We've, we've uh, taken a look at, at a couple of their papers, and we're going to ask them some questions and have a conversation. But um, as always, it's always nice to talk to you, but it's always nice to talk to someone else as well. Absolutely. So uh, so let me see if I can figure out uh, how to do this. All right. We've got Laura. We've got Jay. We've got Don. We've got Ben. Everybody is here. Hi, everybody. Hi. How are you? Great. So sorry about that. That was uh, on this end. No problem. Yeah. <clears throat> no problem. Yeah. So, um, 
So we, uh, I was, I mentioned this to, to Jay. Uh, we'll edit out sort of this connection part um, in our when we do our post processing. Um, but uh, why don't we, you know, with the magic of the internet, go ahead and, and introduce um, each other, uh, or you can introduce yourselves, I guess, um, and uh, and we can start. So. Um, so, Don, we've got uh, Jay Neal from the University of Houston and Laura Nelson from Alchemy Systems here to chat with us today about uh, some of the stuff that they're doing. We, uh, um, uh, we uh, invited them on after um, someone uh, from Alchemy had emailed some stuff to us uh, about some of the training things that they're doing. So we decided uh, we, don't, we don't typically have a whole lot of guests, but, uh, but why not uh, make an exception and invite folks on? So, Laura, Jay, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about yourselves? Sure. First. Go ahead, Laura. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jay. Um, so uh, my name is Laura Nelson, and I'm the Vice President of Business Development and Tech Services for Alchemy. So I am a uh, microbiologist and from University of Texas. Uh, and um, prior to Alchemy, um, I've been with Alchemy about four years. And Alchemy is a um, training solutions provider. Uh, basically, we provide solutions that help align employees um, around the um, company's um, requirements and really drive um, productivity. And so prior to Alchemy, I was with Silica Laboratories for 19 years in a variety of roles, including um, auditing for food safety, uh, um, variety of folks, um, also, I managed some of their laboratories in the Southwest. So lots of uh, different experiences. Great. Thanks, Laura. Uh, Jay? I'm Jay Neal. I'm a associate professor at the University of Houston. I'm at the Conrad Hilton College of Hotel and Restaurant Management. And we're kind of unique. We're a hospitality program that has a food safety department. So we have a BSL Lab 2 here, sensory lab, and really focus and drill down on applied food safety uh, for future managers. I uh, did my PhD at Texas A&M in food microbiology. Um, Laura and I actually started working together a few years ago on a USDA NIFSI grant that we had with the University of Arkansas looking at food safety for non-English speakers in deli environments. And really was looking, we started looking at online training and novel delivery methods uh, using nonverbal training and really was impressed with working with Alchemy. And it's been a, a really strong relationship that we've been able to work with them. Um, you know, so we've done some work with them on, on some of their new, uh, some of their new products and uh, so we looked at some of the science behind it and, you know, it's it's a really nice balance between uh, food microbiology and actual behavior-based knowledge, uh, and, and trying to merge these two. So, uh, we've done some work together on there. We're excited about a new project we're working on. Um, University of Houston uh, recently received uh, an AFRI looking at uh, developing um, behavior-based standard operating procedures for. Fresh and fresh cut produce at retail supermarkets and in, in restaurants. So, we really want to drill down and look at this behavior based training, and and we want to use uh, alchemy as one of the tools we're gonna we're gonna use to to measure this. 
Cool. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you, you mentioned behavior-based training, and, and I, you know, I get get the sense uh, from from what I know about um, alchemy lore. This is kind of the the area that you guys uh, focus in. Can you can you tell us, um, you know, tell us and our listeners a little bit about what behavior-based training is to you and what that means? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so being the the uh, genesis of this really dates back. Um, our company started about 10 years ago, and uh, we provided uh, um, group-based training. So um, in a group, in the classroom typically, um, with clickers. And so you have this, this engagement, forced engagement, I might say, um, for training. And really, that's what the industry wanted, um, that they needed a way to document training. Um, and of course, it was a proliferation at the time of, of lots of different types of audits. Different companies were requesting audits. And really, that was driving a lot of the compliance around training. And so it was checking off the box. They needed a way to document that they had trained you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands uh, or more employees in a single plant. Um, but what we've seen over the time is is a definitely an evolution. So what we see more and more is uh, people recognizing that training, classroom training, formal training in and of itself does not affect uh, change. It doesn't, it doesn't align all those behaviors. You're going to have those rogue, rogue players out there. And so what we started doing is looking at um, ways that we can help facilitate um, really verifying those behaviors that once that training, that classroom training is given, how can we make it easy for that verification of behaviors? Because it's that, that next level of, um, of understanding that we're really wanting to, to document. So we worked on some things, um, and basically we did a, a prototype. Um, we um, contracted an um, expert in um, employee training, um, Robert Meyer, and we had him um, uh, help set up some training with about four different uh, plants. <clears throat> and basically the, the study was uh, determined, uh, it was four different plants located, different geographies, um, different types of products were produced, obviously different uh, demographics of employees. And the the uh, problems that they wanted to address within each individual plant were different. Some of them were actually food safety, and some of them were even workplace safety. And so um, with the help of uh, Bob Meyer, he was able to take those um, problems, those challenges in those individual plants, and break those down into observed behaviors. And he did a baseline of those behaviors initially, and then he developed some very targeted training for those, and he measured um, that um, baseline after training. And then he helped facilitate um, a very structured observations of the behaviors, and where uh, frontline supervisors were able to go in with this tool to um, score the behaviors out in the plant floor. And I know this is very similar to the work that you've done. Um, but it's um, in this manufacturing environment, um, it was something very new for, for many of these folks because, number one, um, supervisors were just running around kind of firefighting. 
And even though they knew they needed to um, really look at some of these areas and do some corrective actions or you know, um, coaching, it wasn't something that these frontline supervisors were comfortable with. So with a, a kind of a, a um, structured tool where it was scoring on behaviors, and then based on the score, the supervisor knew what, um, what to say. Basically, it was prescribed. Okay, so you missed the third step in hand washing. Here's how it's done. Let me see you do it. And then, um, and then that employee was then um, scheduled for a, yet another observation to confirm that they actually understood even after that coaching event. And um, the data really suggests and, and point to the fact that um, you can definitely get an increased compliance even beyond um, that, that real pinpointed classroom training. It really takes those, those observations of behaviors and, and that coaching to, um, to drive even more compliance. And basically what we, um, we saw in that study that we commissioned was an improvement in about um, 23% um, over the initial baseline. So it was, it was really impressive. And uh, we received lots of great antidotal feedback that um, even beyond, let, let's say the, in, the supervisor doesn't have the iPad or the clipboard in front of them, even without that, started to get some behavior change in, in a culture of what is supposed to be done right and then um, even when new employees came onto that line, it didn't take that supervisor with that clipboard. Actually, the employees were saying, no, no, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it this way. So it really spoke to that culture creation. Cool. Um, yeah, so, you know, you'd mentioned that we've done a little bit of work in, in this area, and one of the things that I think is um, a... a, a barrier or is problematic in in this is that you have um individuals who are collecting behaviors and and are collecting data that have some um investment into the system from a either monetary monetary or um performance base and so you know not to you know step around or dance around this too much but um you know if you ask someone who's a manager of or you know a plant manager or a shift supervisor or a line manager in the processing area or in you know the world that I'm uh, a little more familiar with in, in retail and food service, you ask somebody to um, to gather a bunch of data on what people are doing that they're supervising, um, they might lie, right? Because they're the ones who, yeah. who's at, you know butts on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, I think that's that's an issue that. Um, that, that we deal with, with, you know, with some of the, the research that we work on, um, how does, you know, we, we, we recognize that behavior is really important. I mean, obviously, and we recognize that we, um, focus on specific types of behaviors that are, that are risky behaviors. Uh, and then we're, we want people to measure those behaviors. Um, but also if they, if they measure a whole bunch of bad behaviors, they might look bad. Um, so how do you how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. You know that that's actually come up in some of the feedback that we've received, <clears throat> um, and a number of folks have handled this a, um, a couple different ways. So when you put uh, this task in front of a frontline supervisor, number one, um, you really need you need some some soft skill coaching of that supervisor. And and let's face it, 
um, those folks don't get, don't often receive that type of, of um, education. So we're talking about how to motivate, how to um, communicate, how to, um, you know, conflict resolution. And, and so really they need to be armed with, you know, what this whole thing, you know, even coaching skills. So they need to have a, a level of, of knowledge going into it on what, what this process is all about so that they understand that it, it isn't that the negativity associated with it is, is well, um, that, that the goal of this is not to measure the supervisor on bad versus good in their, in their employees, but really to, to collect and to drive all alignment. So um, many people will say, okay, if you can do, um, you know, 30 observations a week, they reward on the observations and how thorough those observations are, not, not any kind of good or bad. Another way uh, some folks are, are addressing this is it's not just supervisors. It's peer-to-peer, and I'm seeing more and more of that peer-to-peer observations so that you take that supervisor <clears throat> out of it, and you're really asking each, each of the team to take on the responsibility of saying this is what we as a team need to be doing. And um, these are our responsibilities, and, and um, we're going to help each other align around those. Oh, that's 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 great. So, um, I, um, you know, one of the things that occurs to me with behavior, and and it, so, it sounds like you're beginning to create the beginnings of a, a culture, like a food safety culture in mm-hmm. in those plants. Um, and my question is, have you done any? long-term studies because it seems like in in the short term you know you you do a training and then you have this this you know sort of behavior based coaching which pushes that that uh success of that training or the implementation of that training even further but I wonder, it's like the, the guy spinning plates on the Ed Sullivan show, right? Eventually, you have to come back and throw some more <laughs> momentum into the system. Um, have you done any work long-term? Or, or maybe the, the, the culture becomes self-perpetuating. So have you done any work long-term? And then if you have, what do you do long-term to kind of keep those plates spinning? Yeah. So that's a great question, and um, I think the short answer is no. So, you know, it's really, <clears throat> I think, so for most people in the industry, just getting that initial classroom training done and a check mark on that from an auditor perspective is really, is, is really for the most part, what many folks see as that's training. We've completed our training needs, and let's move on. Um, and then yet they, they scratch their head on, you know, hey, I just trained those people. Why are they, they still not washing their hands right? Or why are they still, you know, picking up trash with their glo- you know, gloved hands and then going right back to the, to the um, product line? And so um, this is still fairly new. And um, we've taken this, this paper-based um, research. We've created an app on an iPad for it. And we re- recently just um, just provided that to the industry after completing yet another uh, kind of our second behavior change. And what we're finding is that this now this technology makes it easier for folks to do. 
um, maybe a little funner, maybe a little bit more seamless in, in their day-to-day practices um, as they're, you know, auditing, doing a pre-audit for, um, for the startup, for the, making sure the equipment's clean, et cetera. And so it's more um, embedded now, integrated into their, into their process and operations. And so, no, we haven't done a long-term, um, long-term study, but people that have, let's say they're on a, about a six to eight month path, they're continuing to see that alignment and, um, and what, what's been nice about this. And again, I know Ben, just, I'm familiar with some of your work. You've seen this. It's not just observing behaviors and you've done it yes or no. It's, it's more of that communication back and forth. And what companies are finding more and more is the things they've been asking employees to do and they haven't done, there's reasons behind that. And the reasons are maybe they can't get that box all the way over and that's why it's cross-contaminating the lip because it's too heavy or it's, um, there's, there's, uh, it's too narrow and there's, they can't do it or, you know, and they're, they're, they're getting that feedback from those employees, which now they're like, okay, so what we're asking you to do can't be done routinely, and let's figure out a way together to make this done because here's what we don't want to have happen. And the employee goes, okay, great, then maybe we should do this or we should do that. And so um, what we're really seeing coming out of this too is is an optimization of, of, of um, their processes so that, in fact, they can achieve those things that they need to achieve to ensure food safety. Great. Um, oh, good. Um, Lori, we, uh, you know, kind of the what primed this conversation today with, with us was um, uh, a um, global food safety training survey that, that you folks were part of with Camden, BRI, and SQF and BRC. And, and we'll link to... Um, the the PDF of, of a summary of this that that's uh, that's on your website um, with some some data, but this this um, this survey, um, you know, from I, you know I, I don't know how much how involved you were with it, but there are some some questions that that we had from from taking a look at it. I guess so. I'll just give the our listeners a little bit of a a primer here. Um, the idea was to benchmark data. How does training uh, compare to others on a global scale from a food safety standpoint? Um, and it was sent to over 25,000 sites worldwide of food manufacturers and, and processors. Um, is, do you, what was the, I mean, I, I guess, were you, were you involved with the development and the analysis of this? I was involved. Yes, I was. So what? how many... So out of the 25,000 sites that it was sent to, how much? How many responses did you get? I believe this year, and this is our second year, I believe this year we had um, almost 1,200 respondents. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so that's good. Yeah. Pretty, okay. So there's, um, you know, uh, and I'm totally just scrolling through here on, on my computer, but there's uh, one thing that I took away from this. Um, that sort of stood out for me was um, there was a question about what's the organization's primary training goals? And, um, uh, you know, of the, I guess, of the 1,200 respondents, um, almost 90% said their primary training goal was developing a, a food safety culture. But 
the fourth rated um, goal was positive behavior change, and it was just over sixty percent um, uh, of the companies. And to me, that like shows you know we were, we were involved um, early on with some of the um, uh, literature on defining food safety culture and. And I, you know, the, like anything in any any sort of field, um, how it how it kind of starts and, and the folks that, that work on it initially, it obviously evolves once it gets into into practice. But to me, those like there's a this disconnect there of developing a food safety culture. Yeah, that's a really good lofty um, lofty goal that that it's all encompassing of values and cares and 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 often I think what one of the frustrations that I, that I see um, with this concept is it is it is devolving into um, mission statements and core values and, and, and very, like, corporate talk. And, and really what it boils down to for me is is what the, you know, the 60, just over 60% re- re- reported is positive behavior change. I mean, that's, that, that's what, we, what, what I feel matters the most when it comes to, um, to, to reducing risks. So, you know, when, when you were, when you put the, um, the survey out and, and looked at these, these training needs, what were, what were your thoughts on, uh, on some of the results, uh, that you saw? What were, what were some of the surprises? What were some of the, you know, the positive things and what were some of the negative things? Well, that, I, I think like you, this, this, this thing called a food safety culture, you know, everyone, you know, I, in the survey, we put the words "develop a food safety culture." I I've, I kind of get tickled over that because everybody has a food safety culture, and it's depending on how mature and robust it is is in question, and um, and maybe it's even almost negligible. But you, well, you and you can have a bad food safety culture. That's right. right. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> you can right. develop a bad one. You can that's develop exactly a good right. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that you know so. So in and of itself, you either you have a good one or a middle middle of the road or, or a bad one. Um, but you know, as a training goal, I think that topic has kind of been a lightning rod, and 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 people I think recognize that if they can do do that well, then they have the appropriate um, success in their operation. Um, I, I also you know we had a, a effective employee performance, which to me. Um, how do you measure effective employee performance? That was number three in that study, um, right at 75%. And I think that's because you have the behaviors. They're exhibiting the behaviors you just train them on consistently. And and yet they see a disparity between em- effective employee performance and positive behavior change. Um, and then the safe, wholesome product um, as a training goal they want to produce that that's one of their training goals that was even number two and even to get to that consistently you have to have the the behaviors so yeah i um it i think it was interesting i think behavior change showed up for the first time on this second one and and fairly high it's interesting that um you know food safety culture it continues to be the number one goal in the last two um surveys and i I think um, some of the some of the disparities I saw in this survey was um, just the amount of training time that people are spending. Um, uh, you know, we still see, and people still think that um, 
kind of this one and done training. If you do some training very intensely um, once a year, you you can achieve um, the the successes around food safety that you need. And 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 I think the reality is no, um, you can't do that. You need to be able to have a level of awareness of food safety continually through your operations. And so um, we do see a. a um, a slight increase in the amount of food safety people are doing. And um, um, so that was, that seems to be supporting kind of this idea that you do need to do more, more training versus less and, and maybe not, maybe even small chunks. Um, and that's what we're seeing. A lot of the innovative companies are doing uh, more small awareness um, chunks of training and, and versus just this complete download of four hours and then you're all done. Yeah, and, and um, to to your point um, as well, the the next kind of question leads in into that a, a, a little bit of you know in the um, on the slides that I'm looking at on important factors when selecting that training provider or media. I mean, it comes into um, as you said that one and done efficient delivery um, is the number three re- reported. Um, Factor at almost sixty percent of the respondents, and for me, missing from this list, I mean, so I'll just read down the list here: relevant current training content, employee engagement, comprehension, efficient delivery, um, flexibility in training methods, low cost. I mean, very much, um, you know, sort of business factors. Nowhere in this list is it's going to change behavior, right? Yeah, like, like that's right. that, that's the the most, um, I guess, glaring and. and and this is, you know, I, I, I come, you know, Don, what, what, what I really like about, um, about doing this podcast with Don and, and working with Don is, is that he, um, as a microbiologist, also has an interest in this other field of mathematics and how do we apply the, the techniques in another field to what we do for food safety. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what I do. Um, I mean, exactly what I do, and I know Jay. That's that's a lot of what um, a lot of what you do. I I think what we w- one of the issues that we have um, in the food industry is that we've got a lot of people from top to bottom that know how to make good products, and we've got a fairly good amount of people that know how to um, ensure that those products are safe from a technical standpoint. But we don't have a lot of people out there that know that there's this massive field of education and training and psychology and communications that need to be integrated into in anything that we do to, to go forward. And, and maybe that's, maybe the frustration that I have with that is that, um, that it's, that this concept's new, but I don't know, I, I get dismayed by that cause it's not really new. I mean, we can go back to, um, to you know, thirty years worth of outbreaks, and and you look at um, a, a lack of behavior, uh, you know, risk or or, mm-hmm. uh, or risky behaviors, basically, and and we you know we we know a lot about the microbiology, um, maybe not everything, but but I, I'd argue that we know way more about the microbiology of a lot of these um, incidents than we do the psychology and. Um, and, and the practices, and, and in fact, you know the stuff that that you guys work on at, at Alchemy. How do you change those? But it's it's really I, I I think it's it's frustrating that we haven't moved much in in that area. I mean, people are talking about it, but I mean, show me a a, a company that's got a 
a corporate food safety person that has a background in microbiology and psychology. Yeah. Yeah. They're not there. Yeah. I yeah. know. Yeah. We could start screening for that. <laughs> we, we could, but I mean, we're not training people that mm-hmm. way. I mean, yeah, I no. think that's, that's one of the, the things that, um, you know, we just don't have the, the capacity for it um, right now. Um, and it's, and it's part of, I don't I mean, I think there's lots of different, um, reasons for it, but, but, you know, often, and I'm not, I, I, you know, I don't, I hope I don't sort of sound all preachy on this, but, um, it's not, I mean, it's, it's 10 years of, uh, of studying this field that it's exactly the same problem as it was 10 years ago in this area, right? Like we, I, the, the, there's still just a handful of people doing research in this area. There's still just a handful of, of companies adopting it, but there's a lot of stuff um, in listeria and cantaloupes, right? All right, like, right. <laughs> yeah. So Don, what do you what do you think about that? Well, you know, it's. I mean, obviously, if it was easy, it would have been done already. And I guess, you know, certainly this approach where you train and then you you do these, you know, what you guys call COs, like these additional interventions or, or contacts, I think, are really important. Um, I guess my question is, and it's more of a general one, is why, what, what are the, if you, if you guys, if, if Laura and Jay, if you guys could change one thing, you know, about something, about anything to make, to improve food safety, what would that one thing be? In other words, what's the what's the most critical, or or what are the the top top couple critical things that are not happening yet? Like why you know I mean we still we still have food poisoning, right? So why is that you know? And and what are the if you, if you ran the world, right? What would you do to fix that? Jay, I'm going to let you take that okay. first. <laughs> really, you know, I, I think it's kind of putting these pieces together, Don. So, you know, we, we've got this model where it's a one and done. I did what I was supposed to do, check it off. But if we can break down specific processes into smaller steps, train the employees on them, but then give the supervisors the ability to make corrections and give feedback where it's non-judgmental. You know, we we need this. You know, on this this psychology piece of it, you know, one of my colleagues here, E of H, and I, we're really starting to look at error management. So you look at the companies that are in manufacturing that look at error management, you know, and quality defects, and you look at it in terms of you're not in trouble. We just need to look at what the errors were. If we start measuring that, that kind of goes into the culture. It it dictates what the the priorities of the manager of the company are. So if you've got this training and then you're, you're going to uh, – you've got task-specific behavior. You're going to train on that behavior. You then do observations and then you have supervisors doing this this follow-up on it. And then you have it to where there's follow-up. So let's say you know, if I've got a tool that says, okay, Don, you've been with me for six months now. I need you to demonstrate this behavior. One, it gives you an opportunity to – Spend time with that employee. Let's look back at the behaviors. Two, as an employee, Don knows that he needs to perform on this, so he's going to do it, you know, in his best ability to perform well. Uh, and speaking to to uh, what Ben was talking about, so it's not faked. If you have a culture within the organization where, you know, you're measuring errors, but it's not judgmental or punitive, 
you know, it's just we just need the data. You're not going to get in trouble. Your bonus isn't tied to that. It's identifying identifying where the errors are and giving corrective feedback. It will perpetuate itself. You know, the other pieces, you know, to, to Ben's comments, though, in, you know, the, the, the food industry, whether it's retail or production, it's still this gateway industry. It's, it's this, you know, entry-level employees coming in with high turnover, with, with cultural differences. So, you know, really kind of addressing that to create, you know, a coaching environment where employees stay longer and you can give deeper, more in-depth training. And it's not just the, the initial, you know, try to eat Thanksgiving in one meal, you know, the whole Thanksgiving dinner, one sitting, you, you've got to take little bites at a time. That approach over time, these smaller pieces over time, I think is going to hopefully will drive these behaviors. And we'll, I agree with all of you, you know, that, that, you know, everyone wants to quote unquote develop a culture, but the culture is what the culture is. So by having the managers drive this, uh, kind of, a, we, we call it the, this closed circle approach, you know, where you, where you've, you're breaking it down in small pieces, following up, giving it over smaller, uh, smaller amounts of information, and following up on it more repeatedly. I really think that's going to drive this behavior change, and the culture is the the natural byproduct. You know, we've done a little bit of research on food safety culture here, and everything we've seen is it's all driven by the manager. And I see this a lot in retail, where wherever the priorities of that manager are drives the focus. You know, if it's increased food sales or, you know, improving food cost or uh, reducing turnover, that's where their effort goes to. So by getting food safety on their radar and making it a priority really is going to drive it and create that culture. Laura, what do you think? Well, you just mentioned uh, managers, and I know, Ben, you're, you have some recent um, research that supports that where you had a manager that really stood out in a facility and and um, they scored very high right on behaviors yeah yeah absolutely <clears throat> i i think um i think that that management so so the reality in manufacturers is that uh we've got we've got silos for for training we've got food safety folks that say okay i i've got to drop what i'm doing and i i need to create some training on um, GMPs. I need to create some training on sanitation and HACCP. And so they do. And they make that happen and they they execute on it. Then you've got workplace safety that's working on, on an, another another area and they're pulling those employees in on, on workplace safety training. And then HR has their own training. And so there's some disparity, I think, in the totality of what an employee needs to know to do their job and to do it um, well, um, and, and for operations to have a um, level of satisfaction with that. Um, so one of the things I think is that there needs to be a more holistic look at what the training needs to be. So for, because let's face it, as an employee and all those reasons why, Jay, you just described this, this um, bridge, new, you know, high turnover, et cetera, gateway, um, those folks, they all they know is, you know, they get pulled into a room and, you know, what's this? What's the flavor of the month this time? You know, it's this. And there's not a really good way of sharing. Okay, for you to do your job and to be successful here, you need all of these these um, assessments. You need you need to be able to achieve all of these tasks, and it's looked at in a very holistic way. 
And then um, what I know some really innovative companies are doing is saying, okay, now, um, so Jay, here's your list of, of skills um, that you need to be able to do and to do your job well. And by the way, if you get these done, you'll be eligible for um, a pay increase. You'll be eligible for um, advancement. Um, so you now have six months to take these courses, to, to achieve these courses. Here's our, our, here's when the courses will be given. It's up to you to attend the appropriate ones to accomplish that. And what now you find is, okay, now I, I, as an employee, I now, uh, Jay understands the reason why he needs to, to take those. He's now motivated, hopefully, um, with taking those. And, you know, some people will say, if you don't, then you'll be on, you know, you will have some negative consequences to that. But now it's, it's this responsibility thing has been transferred over and they now know, okay, I need this to do my job. And, um, that's a, that, that becomes a bit of a driver for, for those employees. Um, yeah, let me, let me jump in there. I guess it could, but I think what, what you just described is the behavior change has taken the course, not, I would rather it be, the incentive is, okay, the course is going to facilitate you to washing your hands correctly, but what I need you to do is wash your hands. You know, uh, as, as a, a, a cor- you know, in a corporate situation to, to look at that. It's not, I mean, it, it's not about um, the incentive to get the knowledge because I think we can show a lot of spots in the literature where we're getting that knowledge and it, and it comes out in this in the survey findings that you know knowledge relevant training content is important, um, but but really that's still just looking at the the indicators and facilitating that behavior change. We're not getting to the point where the behavior the behavior itself is is um, is the part that's that's valued. Uh-huh. Well, but but Ben, let me let me push back on you a little bit there. Um, Good. I like that. I, Thanks, Doc. Because, because I agree. <laughs> I agree with what you're saying. But, you know, again, it comes down to so much. And this is, this is true in the laboratory as well as in the real world. What can we measure? And we can certainly measure whether somebody's been to a training course. It's a lot harder to measure whether somebody is always washing their hands whenever they're supposed to be washing their hands. And so we naturally gravitate to situations where we can measure stuff. And, and it's, you know, and again, even, even with, you know, looking at whether somebody has been to a training I'm looking, I'm looking through the, the, the PowerPoint deck on the, I think the 2013, uh, survey findings. And, you know, one of the problems is that people don't have good training records. So, so, you know, and, uh, so on the one hand, I can feel for folks that have to do something because they have to satisfy the auditor because, so they have to, you know, like, let's work on getting good training records. And then if we do that, then, then, then maybe the next step is seeing whether the training is effective. I mean, I, I appreciate, I appreciate your point that, you know, ultimately we want to get to the right behavior at the right time, but that's really hard to measure, right? I mean, what, and is. again, yeah. with hand washing, people have done all kinds of stuff with, you know, wacky badges and, you know, tracking people and measuring stuff and, and all of that. But, but the, you know, even anything more complicated than hand washing and it gets, it gets really complicated. So, so, I mean, let me, let me put it back to, to you, Ben and, and Laura and Jay chime in if you, if you want here. Um, what, how how can we how do we measure that because that's a really you know b- measuring that behavior change is really hard so what's how do we do that yeah i mean i think some of the stuff that um 
the J in, in a couple of papers that were shared with us that were in the Agriculture, Food, and Analytical Bacteriology um, journal um, gets at that a little bit. I mean, it's it's about conducting these smaller indicator observation studies, and it's arming um, people with with the tools to do it. And I, you know, I think that's what what you know, Laura's. Um, you know, the Laura talked about earlier on with um, with Alchemy's offerings on types of things that you know, some tools that are available to to do kind of this stuff. I I guess the that that's where it's hard. Yes, it's still not valued, even if it wasn't hard. <laughs> like I mean, is if it's still if I look at the survey stuff, it's not it's not something that people are even getting to that yes we want to this is what what our primary focus should be it's still at let's get our training records in in order and i'm being extremely trite and generalizing this down but it's let's get our trading records in order and check that box still not i want better hand washing and maybe it's because of that because it's so hard to measure is maybe that's a, a a function of that um of the that complexity but i i just you know it's not uh, I don't know. I'm, well, getting, we, I'm here's grumpy the, here's today. The, here's, the thing, here's the thing, Ben. We can't ever. We can't ever. Certainly, having good training records and being able to document training is important, right? But what we can never forget is that ultimately the goal is better hand washing or or better behavior, right? I, I think that's. Right, I think right. that good training records and adequate training are a step along the way. So that's that's maybe the the, the way I would phrase it is that. But we can't ever rest and say, oh, my God, thank goodness we checked that box and yeah. now we're okay. No, no. All you did was you checked a box. You're not okay. You need, you need to now go and show, okay, how are we okay or what's the next thing we need to do? It never, it never ends, right? So how do we – let's, let's ask the harder question and let's do the additional research and let's, let's move to the next project because it's going to get us – hopefully it's going to get us closer. And maybe along the way, we'll learn stuff about, well, what constitutes acceptable training and, and what are some good training ideas and what are some bad training ideas. And then let's do more of the good ones and less of the bad ones. And then let's also find a way to make sure that we are are really – that ultimately what we're measuring is what we – the behavior change we want. Or And in fact, we really don't – we don't – ultimately even really care about behavior change. What we care about is safe food, right? So so yeah. it really doesn't matter what your hand-washing behavior is as long as you don't make somebody sick from cross-contamination with hands, right? So even even the, the focusing on the specific behavior is not the right thing. The right thing is ultimately at the end of the day that we have safe food and that people don't get food poisoning. And 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 overly focusing on the wrong behaviors, like maybe maybe, and this is a guy that does hand washing research. Maybe <laughs> we shouldn't focus so much on hand washing. Maybe it's cooking, or maybe it's cross contamination by things other than hands. Right. So so let's even not get wrapped up around this thing that this behavior that we're trying to change because it might not even be the most important behavior. No, fair, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, I you know so. All good points, and one thing I—if you—if you peel this onion even further, if you back up to even talk about, so we so we've asked Jay in my example to to take these um, this training based on his job perform and job needs. Um, if if then I I've presented this training, what 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 oftentimes is happening when when I describe those quality control folks that are putting together training, it's it's folks like like all of us 
you know, uh, microbiologists that are, are putting together uh, this training. And, and what we still find is that training is at a 12th grade graduate level training. Um, it's, you know, here's where listeria resides, here's the niches, blah, blah, you know, all this things. And it's not at that fifth grade, sixth grade level where, where the demographics of these employees typically need to be. And so when you're looking at even just handing them the training and saying, go, go get it, you've got to make sure that that training is going to be effective. And, and y'all probably know a lot better than I do, but these these um, millennials and the you know um, they they learn differently than the baby boomers, and so we've got folks still handing out these very uh, laborious SOPs and in sheets and you know single space page after page. Read this and sign this that you read it and understood it, and and it's by the way you have to do this before you can can get out on the plant floor. Well, of course they're going to skim it at best and sign it and get going. But did they understand that? No, they probably didn't understand all of that information. Well, and and, so, and I, I, uh, that's, that's, that's fantastic, Laura. And so I have, a, I have an anecdote and then I want to c- come back and ask you guys a question about something you mentioned earlier called nonverbal training. And the anecdote is this. So we were um, doing some training for a New Jersey food company that had largely uh, Spanish-speaking employees. And so we would, we, you know, we had slides in English, and at some point we got the bright idea that we would take the slides and we would translate them into Spanish. Um, discovered after we had done that that it really didn't help because these workers were actually illiterate in Spanish. They really couldn't read and write Spanish very well. And so the key thing to do was to have a, a translator there who, and again, even, and again, if you've done any Spanish language translation, you know that it's not just enough that you speak Spanish. You have to speak the Spanish from the country or the culture that these people are from. And so Puerto Rican Spanish is not the same as Argentinian Spanish, is not the same as Peruvian Spanish, is not the same thing as Mexican Spanish. Um, so, so, you know, I think that, you know, again, often to, to your point, Laura, we come in with this, you know, 12th grade leading, reading level or college reading level. And we have to just simplify it way more than that. But I, but I, but what I really that's all my lead into wanting to ask you guys about this thing that you mentioned. One, and I apologize, I'm not sure whether it was Shay or Laura. One of you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, very, at the very beginning of the call, nonverbal training. So I'd like to learn more about that. Oh, that was me. So um, you make me laugh because we have the same problem here in Houston, where there's a, a large national restaurant chain that's based here in Houston spent, I don't know how much money they spent, but their, their software for their point-of-sale system was the server could order a menu item in English, and then it would print back in the kitchen in Spanish, again, with this assumption that everybody could read Spanish. And the guys were like, I have no idea what this ticket says. You know, they spent all this money. So, um, But one, this is when I first started teaching ooh, 12, 13 years ago. I was driving into work, and, and I spent 15 years in, in restaurants before I started teaching. And I was driving into work one day and, and I had this idea is I need to teach my students how to have empathy for non-English speakers because, you know, it, that's who's in our kitchens. And it doesn't necessarily be Spanish here in Houston. It could be Korean or Vietnamese or Chinese or, you know, the health department here teaches food safety in 12 different languages. I mean, we've got everybody here. So I, I forced my students to, to be in the kitchen setting. It was a lab class where we had six kitchen managers, and they had a team of three and four students with them. And I just wanted them to get this idea of what does it feel like to be a non-English speaker at work. 
So I've came up with a recipe. It was, I think it was chicken wings with a couple of different sauces, something fairly simple. Gave it to the managers written down. And then I took the whole recipes and I translated it using like it, it's, it's a, oh, it looks like a Greek font, but it's not. It's almost like wingdings. And I translated the whole recipe into that. <laughs> and then I gave it to my students. And I said, okay, guys, here's your recipe. Managers, here's just, here it is in English. You need to prepare this recipe, but nobody can talk. The, the, the whole lab is going to be silent, and you can only use hand gestures to get it cooked. And, you know, for hospitality students, they're all extroverts, so they think they're going to spontaneously combust if they can't talk for 45 minutes. And it actually turned out to be this great team-building exercise. Oh, my God. Because they I, want, I want video of that, Jay. I want video of that so on we, the Internet. We, how so, many of them just started to smoke? Right there. Guys, like, I can't do it. I'm like, I've seen it done. So actually, we've done this experiment now for about 10 years here at the college. It's a team-building exercise. The the kids love it. They don't tell each other. So from semester to semester, nobody knows what's going to happen. But we've now started to do it with – we've got short courses from people from the Texas Restaurant Association, from the Texas Hotel and Logic Association. We do it with them. But – we also brought in a social psychologist in, Dr. Juan Madera, and we published a couple different articles on this. I'll be happy to send it, but it's more about the behavior and the empathy for non-English speakers. So we've, we've seen that um, when we put a team together and we had, you know, uh, let's say the kitchen manager was from the States, but the other students on the team are international students, they were more inclined to offer sign language back. So the, the manager can hand you a pair of tongs, and if it's not what he wants, they'll respond back. So we looked at nonverbal communication, and we also found that employees or students that have – they speak a second language or they work in an environment where a second language, we, we, we turn them – they have a multicultural competency. And they tend to have better nonverbal skills, and they're more patient, and they will continue to work with the students. So we actually eventually put in cameras in the, in the kitchenettes to watch the students to look for uh, food safety behavior because you can't tell somebody how do you, you, know, you, you need to wash your hands or you, you, know, you, you have a hot pan behind you. There's a sharp knife. So we did another experiment. We did the exact same thing, but we gave the students um, – Picture books. So it was all the slides. Um, so we, in our kitchenettes, we have three that are gas and three that are electric, and we split them down the middle. One half of the group had the picture books, and the other didn't have the picture books to see how – one, we actually judged them on how long it would take to prepare the meal. Um, we had very specific cues in terms of size and shape of cuts of, say, something like an onion uh, to see if they could actually follow directions to communicate those. And then we had a tasting panel to see you know, what the quality of the product was. So those that had the, the cookbooks – and the cookbooks – I shouldn't call them a cookbook. It was just a picture of the recipe and slides at each step. Um, those that had those were more accurate, had better taste, had um, were faster by about 20 minutes. And something as simple as if the picture of the cook had gloves on in the picture, without prompting the teams, they would go put gloves on. So we can't underestimate the, the, the power of the picture. So, you know, the people, are, I think, are more inept to, okay, what is the picture showing me? And I need to mimic that behavior. So if the picture has gloves on, I need to put gloves on. If the picture has, you know, they're taking a temperature, then and it measures the exact, you know, the, you say the chicken, we need to be cooked at 165. And you have a picture of the thermometer at 165. You're cueing them. Um, and it's, just been, it's been a lot of fun. But we've learned so much from that. Um, you know, we've actually done even cartoons and slides and info sheets, kind of like what Ben does. But 
you don't have to put a language on it. You know, if you could, if you can dem- uh, demonstrate it, you know, with a cartoon graphic or or picture, and then go back uh, with you know, if we do translate it, we you know, we do have a lot of international students here, and we are able to translate it. We try and translate it the most simple form. You know, can you do it in ten words or less in a bullet point? Don't don't give you the whole dissertation. Don't give us the whole history of, you know, listeria contamination on a deli slicer. You know, wash here, unplug, disassemble, you know, wash, rinse, sanitize, air dry. Just, you know, just bare bone basic, you know, demonstrations of it or, or explanations. And that really helps. I want you all to come to Houston and do the nonverbal exercise with us. Though. I think you guys <laughs> oh, will have there, fun. I'm there, man. I'm there. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool. Uh, I, I like it. Um, one, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that you mentioned there, Jay, is, is, is kind of the modeling that behavior and well i guess displaying that behavior and not focusing so much on the the history of it and i i I take that to how do you how do you model the why um not you know what what you're talking about is is modeling the how Mm -hmm. and and given that um and you know what what we've seen with with some of the work that we've done and and some of the work that, that others have done is that 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 why matters. I mean, the the theory of planned behavior um, kind of instructs that 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 why matters. The control, uh, a feeling of control, matters um, as well. So, how do you, you know, not to put you on the spot, but how do you do that in a nonverbal way? We haven't, you know, just in talking out loud, just in thinking of it, it, it's it's the why is important, but I think also the when is important. When do you have that discussion with them? You know, when you've got new employees just kind of onboarding and getting started, give them the what, give them the how, and then over time, start to show them why. Now, I'm on a, in a nonverbal sense, I'm going to have to play with that one. I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. I mean, that's yeah. fast. It's a great question, and, and you know, future research project with you. We got to figure that one out. So, um, but I think it's important. You know, when when do you give it? You know, and I think a lot of times when we look at the existing, and not to pick on them, I mean, we had to start somewhere. If you look at the existing retail manager certification programs, it's drinking out of a fire hose. We're giving them too much why at one time. You know, and I don't know if it translates, and I know it doesn't translate well into actual practices. So. Um, all right, you gave me a homework assignment, but I'm on it. So yeah, we're all, we're all about homework on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm on it. Um, Laura, you, you mentioned something uh, that I wanted to come back to as well, um, especially around um, the you know managers and, and anecdotes that, that we had seen in some of our research and, and coaching. Um, Jay, you had mentioned. Um, I l- let me set this up with. I'm about to embark on coaching my five-year-old son hockey because it's as cliched as possible as I'm Canadian. It's really all (laughs) I do is play hockey and watch hockey and then some food safety stuff every once in a while. Um, But, uh, but my, you know, my son starts um, uh, hockey next week. And uh, so I had to fill out an application based on all of the things that I had done in the past, what level of hockey that I played myself, um, to, to see whether I could qualify to coach a six-year-old how to shoot a puck. And it, it, it struck me as I was doing it that um, we, we make a lot of assumptions 
in the world of of food where we've got someone who's in charge, someone who may manage uh, a restaurant or a line or supervise other people. Are they good at supervising or are they good at coaching? And are those things separate and how separate are they? I mean, and, and how do we how do we teach people to be good coaches and what are the what are the aptitudes that, that they need to have to to do that because i don't i mean i don't think we do a whole lot of that um and and laura you you alluded to it a little a little bit uh in in some of your work and i just wanted to come back to that as are there are there folks that, that either of you work with or you have any examples where people have been able to go out and either make supervisors good coaches or select for good coaching attributes within their supervisors because i feel like they need all this food safety stuff needs some sort of a champion out there and they've got to be a good coach so um the excellent question ben because i the um one of the the if you go back to our initial study um where we had the uh initial behavior change study one of the two of the four plants um, is very uh, progressive in their training. So one of the things that they did was they put, um, uh, they had previous to, to the study, had their supervisors and managers go through a pretty extensive supervisory um, training. And it was those things that I mentioned, um, including conflict resolution, communication styles, communi- how to um, communicate effectively, um, how to uh, motivate employees. So, you know, it's the give, give three positives and then the negative, um, you know, a lot of the, that kind of training. And what we found is that, that uh, the results from that, that particular plant in using some of this coaching tools and the, in the, um, the, um, pl- uh, from the baseline of no pre-training and then post-training and then the three corrective observations, those folks had a, a maybe a, a, a more, a higher jump and it may not have been significant, uh, percentage wise, but it was, um, they had a, an ease in executing on the corrective actions um, for their employees. Um, and so it, part of the feedback that we received from that initial study was, wow, um, so opt- automate, automating this um, corrective action tool would be very helpful. So we can't, it, we can't sustain it going back to Don's point of view on um, it's got to be easy. Um, you know, there's only so much that people have time to do. So it does need to be automated. But the other key point that they mentioned was we've got to have training around just what it is that a supervisor needs to do to be a good coach. Um, and so we, we took that to heart and we created some, some um, courses that is part of the tool so that um, for those people that aren't as innovative as the company that I mentioned before, that they really understand that in order to to be successful in this coaching experience, you do need people to have a certain um, skill set. I think um, I think what people are finding is that you know to to Don's point and Ben you pointed out, people get. Um, promoted for a lot of different reasons. Maybe they understand the equipment. Maybe they are the senior person that left uh, last one standing and they get promoted. 
um, a number of different reasons, and it's not necessarily because they can manage their their employees well. And so I I I believe that there is a a um, area of opportunity um, to provide more enhanced um, specialized training for those folks because. I mean, typically these folks, they used to be peers, and now all of a sudden they have to um, to manage their their prior peers, and it's it's difficult. It's awkward to um, to tell a friend, "Hey, you, you're doing that wrong," and and you need, you know, this is the way, especially in different cultures. So, right, it's, it is a big challenge. And and not everybody makes a good coach. Exactly. I mean, and, and running a business isn't always. You know, there might be the best coach who loses a bunch of money, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, it makes yeah, you feel yeah. good about it. It makes you feel really good about yourself and the fact that you did lose the money. But you right. know, yeah, we we see that. It, well, I got to be careful how I say this. You, you see it in academia all the time, also though, where you have a very good professor and then suddenly they go into administration and they've never managed anybody, you know, and then they become this little dictator, you know. So right. that Let's, that happens. Yeah. Not not in any of our departments for any of our Never. department chairs who are listening, but yeah. certainly in many in many I've many other departments, it's this. very common. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but, well done. Jack. You know, well the done. other thing though is you know you look at employees a lot of times, especially if they're that frontline supervisor, that person in charge, they got promoted because they're dependable. You know, they show up on time, mm-hmm. their work gets done, and they're a very good soldier. Doesn't mean you know. Again, doesn't mean they're going to be a good coach or a good leader. Um, you know, I, I, you made me think of something. You know, talking about kids and everything. This weekend, I was at a soccer tournament in Dallas with my son, and we went to a restaurant. And the server was doing a great job, but he was being trained by he had a, you know, it was two servers for three people. You know, and you know, I got to thinking, well, why is this woman? Why is she the trainer? And, you know, again, I don't know if she's a good coach, but her sales are good. You know, she's a good server. You know, she upsells. She has good customer service, good feedback. The hope is that she can teach others to do the same thing. Her focus is getting her sales up, though, so she can get better tips. Doesn't mean that she necessarily cares about coaching or training. You know, so great. You're, if we make you a trainer, we're going to give you a dollar more an hour. Okay, that's an incentive. Doesn't mean I have to be great about it, though. I just... You know, you put more money in my pocket. So, again, it, it, and we've seen this in some of the culture studies we've done, especially in the Hispanic culture. They don't want to be, you know, a supervisor. They don't want to be a frontline employee. You know, I had a, I had a woman that worked for me at, at, where I work here in town. She had been with the company for 25 years in the highest. You know, we, we consistently offered her a position. You know, do you want to be assistant manager? Do you want to go into leadership? Nope. I'll be, you know, key employees fine. I don't want to do that. Why not? I'm not comfortable with that, you know. So it is sometimes that may have been just her, but it is cultural, you know, where they don't want to take that step up. Um, you know, Jay, one of the things that that triggered for me is, um, <clears throat> you know, if you look at how employees are learning now um, in in many many plants and in in um, retail, even it's it's standing next to Nellie, and Nellie is doing coaching. She's mm-hmm. some. It's that on-the-job training. Some employees saying, "Okay, do it this way." And by the way, when we get slammed, you don't have to do it that. Do it. Mm-hmm. You can take a shortcut here, and you can let take me a show you there. the art of cutting corners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that coaching is happening, in, uh, informally or however you want to uh, apply that, every hour of every day. 
So really what you're trying to do is, you know, I don't, I'm not sure you need someone that is, is just a superior coach, but you need more of a, of a formal one that has the has the answers and you need someone that's confident that has, I think, been going back to the whys, that understands those whys. And that to me would be more of a challenge than maybe just having an, the optimum skill in, in motivating and communicating. It's that they're confident, able to say, yeah, I, I know these are the four steps or the five steps in hand wash and this is a process and these, you know, and can answer that and say, okay, after you do this, that's the right behavior. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's, <clears throat> I think people underestimate the amount of coaching that's going on day to day, hour to hour. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, as you said, Laura, it's the, there's a lot of informal leadership that goes on that's either, you know, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but there's, uh, um, just the nature of, of the food business and the teamwork that's, uh, that's required. People are, are typically not very isolated in their jobs and, and those, um, leadership qualities, uh, tend to emerge and, and, and that, that really, I mean, just to, to circle this back and, and seal off the the conversation here. That's really the essence of what we try to write about in in the food safety culture area is that um, training's one component and auditing's one component, and it's uh, all of these things together lead to that value of who's a leader in the in the system and whether that leader has the right information, um, believes it feels that their information has some control and then they transfer it to those around them. Uh, so everyone sort of works together. Um, and so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we, I, I can, um, I can be frustrated about this, uh, all, all I want. I think we're, we're moving things forward just by having discussions like this and, and seeing, um, the, the types of programs that are there at IAFP and, and other places around this, um, uh, you know, it's uh, it's great to um, to have these discussions to to try and move it forward. Um, we uh, Don and I are are um, kind of up against a couple of scheduling things today, so we just you know really appreciate Jay, Laura, your time uh, coming in and and dealing with our little bit of uh, um, uh, it, it, technical issues, but to to get things started. But uh, thanks for for coming on and having a really great discussion with oh, us. This has been great. Thank you both Appreciate very, very it. much. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah, thank you guys. Enjoyed this it. has been this has been fantastic. This uh, we we had good expectations coming in, but you've definitely exceeded my expectations. We really we really appreciate the the frank conversation about the opportunities and and the challenges. Very good. Absolutely. Thank y'all. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. Take care, guys. Bye bye. Bye.
you still there? I'm here. You did not hang up on me. I didn't hang up on you at all. <laughs> um, and uh, there we go. I think everybody, uh, They're gone. Yeah. Oh, that was that one great. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Was, I'm glad. I'm glad we did it the the way we did. That was awesome. Um. So. Uh, so you got you have a, a one o'clock call. I do, and I and I probably would be good if I prepared a little bit, and I need to maybe eat some lunch too. Okay. Well, go eat some lunch. This is. <laughs> This has been good. I, um, I should go eat some lunch. You're going to stay here and talk for I'm a little say, while. Yeah, you, yeah, I'm just going to make this. Uh, it would it be okay if I just did a monologue? Just a <laughs> that wouldn't be creepy at all, right? Like a food safety talk, a singular food safety talk. You know, there are there are podcasts out there where it's a single person just talking, and I I just find those very hard to listen to. There is something natural about a conversation with a couple of people. Um, you know, but yeah, um, the, if the, if they're short. They're they're pretty good. Like uh, for a while, Merlin did um, uh, something. I think he called most days where it was him, oh, yeah. and it was it was video, and it was great. I like that. Yeah, and then and then there's also a very cool thing um, that I listen to uh, called Your Daily Lex, which is a podcast um, done by Lex Friedman, who's um, a internet personality that I've. I, stalking is not quite the right word, but that um, do you had tea with? I did have tea with. Very good. You remember? I so, do. I do. Um, uh, yeah, which is which is a one person podcast, but but again, it's very it's very short, and he talks about nothing for like five minutes, and and it's delightful and hilarious. Um, occasionally he had occasionally he does have a guest. He's had his, all of his kids on as guests, <laughs> um, and it's and it's great. But but again, you know, for to listen to one person just talk for a long time is just it's really uh, it, it's it really takes a special person to make that work. Um, and again, maybe sort of with webinars, we do that, but again, it's one person with slides and then there's an, uh, sort of a preset audience and it's sort it's sort of set up to be that way. Whereas I think generally podcasting really does more lend itself to a conversation. Agreed. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think I could do a, a two minute food safety talk daily thing, but you know, you could do that by yourself, but you couldn't do a 45 minutes, um, one, one ended discussion of things that are popping into your head. And mm-hmm. it would miss you. I wouldn't want to. I don't want to talk without you. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh. Hey, so uh, so we've got some um, some notes from that you know that we didn't get to today that we'll get to uh, next time because I mm-hmm. th- as a teaser, I mm-hmm. want to talk to you about um, something called so people can look this up. Uh, it is called like sponge bath. Do you know about sponge bath? <laughs> Sponge bath square sink? No, it's sponge bath. And, no, it, um, you just check it out. I'm going to send you the link. We'll we'll link to it and we'll come back and talk to this or talk about this next time. But this it, is, it this is is keeping clean without running water. Uh, no, no, it okay. is meet sponge bath, the world's first effective sponge cleaner, and it's something you hang on your uh, your sink to oh, keep your sponge to, ba- yeah. to bathe your sponges. It's not like you're bathing with a sponge it's you're bathing your sponge exactly so we'll i i want this is your homework you check out sponge bath and then we'll come back and talk about it all right cool uh i'm I'm in this so uh so this has been uh food safety talk uh episode 60 yeah (laughs) 60 to be determined um and thanks again to uh, Laura Nelson and Jay Neal for joining us and having a, a great discussion about training. That was that was really great. So, Don, uh, we'll do this again, and then uh, I always enjoy catching up with you.
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye.